the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. My friends, you are sitting in a sermon. Whether you know it or not, these windows, um, this cross, even the ceiling itself is telling a story if you know how to listen. You are sitting inside a sermon. For instance, um, this building is preaching the Christian view of time, even its architecture. So you go back 2,000 years, and the world in which Christianity was born had a particular view of time and understanding of how it worked. Many in the, in the ancient world viewed time as cyclical. It was this series of revolutions that occurred again and again and again. But the church said different. Christians date creation. We peg it to a beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1. And also it is moving toward an end. Then I saw the new heavens and the new earth from Revelation 21. So when Christians started building their own churches around the 4th century, they inscribed that view of time in stone and mortar and glass. So it is not an accident that when you come in our church, when you come in many churches, you enter by the baptistry, that little nook where, uh, the, the, uh, where people begin their Christian life. In our church, we actually move it up to the front. But in most churches, their, Baptist, their fonts are not movable, so they stay back by the doors because that's where baby Christians are born. But then once you come into this large area, into the nave, your eyes sweep to this end, to the area inside the rails where the altar is. The terminus, the culmination. So you enter at the beginning at the baptistry, but you end at heaven. Beginning to end. Dr. Helen Dietz um, wrote this in an article for the Institute for Sacred Architecture. She said, Christians reordered their architecture to express a version of time as linear and progressive. Discarded was the pagan Roman cyclical sense of time going nowhere except round and around as reflected in their architecture. So in the new basilica, that's what the church buildings were called, as soon as one entered from the open air atrium at the near end of the rectangular building and passed through the shallow narthex, one would have visually experienced the apse at the far opposite end as a climactic conclusion to the long, narrow vista of receding pillars, a vista which invites the foot of the viewer to step in a definite direction, which pulls his eye toward a single focal point. By creating an expectancy, this climactic arrangement powerfully expressed the unique biblical concept of time as linear, progressive, and moving toward a conclusion. The basilica, the church building announced that yes, there was a beginning which you've left behind. Yes, there is a now in which you presently exist. And afterwards, when time itself comes to an end, there will be something quite different. So that long quote is why uh, my friend uh, Philip Fadiker in his book, 
uh, in Journey into the Heart of God, it's a book about the Christian year, he says that the liturgical calendar and even our buildings are reminders because we forget. They're like strings on our fingers because, he says, we are in need of being reminded who we are, in need of being reminded of who we are called to be, people on the way. We are called, Father Fadiker says, to be a pilgrim church, a pilgrim church. Just think about that, and not because Thanksgiving is this week. Think about it because we are pilgrims. We are moving, and the thing that we're moving toward, this new world, is called the kingdom of God. That is what this feast today is about. Today is some, in some places called the Feast of Christ the King. In our, in our tradition in the Episcopal Church, it's actually not called Christ the King. That's kind of a made-up thing. Um, but it is, uh, it's just called the last Sunday after Pentecost. And next week, Advent begins. But ever since 1925, this Sunday in the Western Church has had a theme, or there's been a theme on a Sunday in autumn about the kingship of Christ. Pope Pius XI instituted this in 1925 as a way to celebrate the supreme authority or kingdom or reign of Christ to combat the destructive forces of the age. He called them the dense fog of mutual hatreds and grievances that had horrified the world in the Great War. And so amid famine an epidemic, even the world itself, the earth itself was scarred by that event. He called for a feast in honor of the kingship of Christ, the Prince of Peace. And we are pilgrims moving through time from our baptisms to the culmination of the kingship of Christ. So today I have three questions. Number one, what kind of a kingdom is this? Number two, what does that mean for me? And then lastly, what does it mean for us collectively in the church? So number one, what kind of a kingdom is this? That's what Pilate wanted to know. So you are a king. He summoned Jesus and asked, are you the king of the Jews? And then you skip down a little bit. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. So to Pilate, Jesus was a rival king, a, a king... Another king would be a rival, a threat. But look at the scene. Jesus doesn't seem to be a rival at all. He's in fetters. He is, he's been stripped. He is in front of Pilate, who's exercising authority over him. In fact, he doesn't even seem to have any followers at all. So if Jesus is a king, it's a strange type of kingdom. In fact, for all intents and purposes, it must be an invisible kingdom. I know I've used this illustration before, but you probably have noticed that the Matrix is back. So the, the Matrix Resurrections uh, comes out next month. I haven't decided if I'll actually go see it. I probably will, just for the sake of, I don't know, reasons passing understanding, but I'll go see it. Um, but the first movie came out back when I was in seminary, and at the time, Renee and I lived on the North Shore of Boston. We were uh, volunteering with a youth group at our church in Marblehead, Massachusetts, and one night, uh, about the time the movie came out, our friend Jeremy, who was the youth director, explained, he used that movie to explain 
the kingdom of God in a way that our kids could understand. So if you have not seen the movie, then where have you been for 20 years? But if you haven't seen the movie, the, one of the themes is, in fact, the theme is perception. It's perception. The premise is that nothing is what you think it is. Nothing is as it seems. So humans may think we're eating a hamburger or drinking water or we're sitting in this church or walking down Broadway. But in fact, in the movie, uh, in fact, we are really not any of those things. We're hooked up to the matrix, which is this vast network uh, that makes us believe that these things are happening to us, even while our bodies lie in kind of a suspended animation and these machines are harvesting us for energy. So, uh, in one of the pivotal scenes of the movie, Morpheus, one of the characters, uh, kind of briefly um, disrupts the Matrix in order to give the main character, Neo, a chance to see things as they really are. You remember, he has two pills one's red, one's blue. And he says, if you take the red pill, you learn the truth, that nothing is what you think it is. But if you take the blue pill, and you just go back to your blissful way of life like nothing ever happened. And so this famous scene, he says this. I must have used this card 50 times. This is your last chance. After this, there's no turning back. You take the blue pill, the story ends, you wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill... You stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. So Neo could not perceive reality inside of the Matrix. He couldn't see it, couldn't feel it, couldn't taste it, but it was nonetheless true. And the kingdom of God is like that. There are kings all around us, rival powers, there are isms, nationalism, socialism, individualism, expressivism, totalitarianism, capitalism, globalism, you name it. But Jesus is the true king. It's just his kingdom is, for the moment, invisible. That we can't see, taste, or touch it. But it is real. So that's what kind of kingdom this is. Question two is, what does that mean for me? And in short... It means that like Neo, we have a choice. I have a choice. I can either submit to the gracious reign of Christ in my life, or I am a rebel with a rival king. A rebel with a rival king. Every time I think about this choice, I'm reminded of a, uh, of a window. So I met Jesus at an Episcopal church in, while well, I was in seminary, actually, in, um, it's Christ Church of Hamilton and Wynnum, uh, also on the North Shore of Boston. And one of the most striking things about this church is the window that's behind the, the altar. So we're all looking that way. The window behind the altar is called the Resurrection Window. I don't think I've talked about it here. Um, but it's called the Resurrection Window, and it's, it's odd. It's kind of an odd shape, almost an oval, but not quite. You can find pictures of this on the Internet. Uh, it is actually recessed into the wall, so it's sort of cut out and the wall comes around it, such that you cannot see the whole window. Really, there's no vantage from any place in the church where you can see the whole window at one time. And it's abstract, so you can't... I, I sat there for years <laughs> trying to think, make this thing be something, like be a picture of anything, but there was nothing there. 
Well, there was one thing. There was one thing that looked like what it was, but to see it, you had to leave the comfort of your pew, walk to the front of the church, and kneel. And if you did that, just at the very top of the window was a tiny golden crown. You could only see the reign of God if you would kneel. We become subjects of the true king, the king of peace and justice and truth, only when we let him have his way with us. One last point. So if there is a king, and if that's what it means for me is to submit, then what about the church? Well, I think it says this. I think that if Christ is the king and we submit to his rule, that what that says for us collectively as a family at St. Bartholomew's is that we now make the invisible kingdom visible. We do it two ways. One is we become sacraments of the kingdom. Remember your sacrament, your, your definition from confirmation class. A sacrament is an outward invisible sign of an inward invisible spiritual grace. So you become outward and visible signs in the world of the invisible reign of Christ inside your heart, inside your home. And the second way we do it is by becoming agents of that kingdom. No moment of your life is insignificant. Every single second is a chance to do something to make the kingdom of God tangible in the world. So Morpheus told Neo, the matrix is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. And Jesus told Pilate, for this I was born. I came into the world to testify to the truth. Today's feast pulls away the lies of every rival king. And like the architecture of our building, it invites us to step into a stream of time, moving in a definite direction, pulling us toward a single focal point of Christ the King. Submit to His gracious rule, become sacraments of His kingdom, and agents of peace truth and justice in the world. Consider that an invitation. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.